Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series, The Mysteries of the Kingdom. So let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 45, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, What It Takes to Believe. We've been studying Matthew 11 to 13. We have noted that Matthew wrote this book to give convincing evidence that Jesus really is the Messiah, the the long-awaited King of the Jews, the rightful King of the world. But as we've seen in the book, not everyone was convinced. And furthermore, not everyone is convinced today. So what do you think makes convincing proof? You know, perhaps you have a friend who's a skeptic. What do you think they would need to believe? Or perhaps you're a believer and you're still plagued by significant doubts. So what kind of proof are you looking for? Or perhaps you've encountered something that has challenged your faith recently. What kind of things cause you to doubt and what kinds of things settle those doubts? I used to teach a class at a Bible college entitled Christianity and Contemporary Thought. It was a course on competing worldviews, competing ways of, of seeing reality. In the class, I presented deism and then atheism and then naturalism, polytheism, pantheism, and even something called panentheism. I also described our present-day secularism. And one day, I got a disturbing email. It read something like this. Your class has caused me to doubt my faith. You know, I was was deeply concerned. You know, for one, after presenting every worldview, I would painstakingly give the Christian response, giving reasons to believe and equipping students to know how to defend their faith. And secondly, the entire point of the class was to prepare my students to be active in sharing their faith and able to answer all challenges. And I was especially interested in, in equipping those going to university. I mean, the last thing I wanted was to confuse them. I wanted them to be solid in their faith, not doubting. I pulled my student aside and I asked him to explain. Had I in some fashion led him astray? Well, he told me that before my class, he had no idea that there were so many ways of seeing the world and and just the reality of the choices out there, regardless of the answers that I gave. Well, that was a terrible shock to him. You know, if only he had not known this, he said, well, he could have carried on in his faith. You know, I've never forgotten that. You know, I've asked, was there anything else I could have done to have prevented this crisis? but is faith hiding from reality? And what does it take to believe? Here's what's even more fascinating. What it takes to believe varies greatly, both individually, but also according to our culture. One person needs answers to the questions they find pressing. You know, are miracles possible? What's the state of archeology span in the Bible? What do various religions believe? And what is the Christian response to the vast diversity that's out there? but the other person finds this kind of talk confusing and he wants nothing of it. I find it fascinating that Matthew, when presenting Jesus as the king, really does take the time to address the objections that people have to Jesus. And in the section we're about to discuss, we are reminded what Paul spoke of in 1 Corinthians 1.22. For Jews demand signs, he said. So let's read our text, Matthew 12, 38 to 42. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. You know, at first glance, this entire encounter with Jesus, well, it seems crazy. Jesus has been healing the sick and raising the dead and cleansing lepers and causing the blind to see and the deaf to hear, casting out demons. I mean, how many signs do you need? But some Bible teachers believe that the Pharisees needed a sign as opposed to a miracle. You know, one writer said the difference between a sign and a miracle was that signs were believed to be delivered immediately from heaven while miracles were done here on earth through people. So, so signs were thought of as being bigger than miracles, more significant. In a sign, they would argue God would do something in the heavens, in the sky, and a miracle happened on earth through someone. And so it could be faked or staged for the gullible, but a, but a sign happened in the sky and, and therefore it could not be faked. So in this view, Jesus heals people and that's impressive, and yet it's not proof. It might be significant, but who knows how he does it? Let's see a sign, they say. Now, let's get back to our problem. What constitutes proof? And, and more than that, if Matthew wrote his book to show that Jesus really is the king, I mean, why do some people not find this book, that is, the book of Matthew, based on real eyewitness testimony? I mean, why don't they find that convincing? And more so, why didn't the historical Jesus simply provide the kind of proofs that people need? You know, if the message is that God came to us in the form of his son, well, surely then the son should be able to produce proof that will satisfy everyone. I remember when I was a young and immature Christian, I, I was trying to share my faith while I was studying in university. And in our dialogue, I foolishly asked a young man to just ask God to reveal himself to him. You know, a week later, he came back and he said, well, I did that and there was nothing. Just what I suspected, he said. You know, I then realized that, that he had done just what the Jews had demanded of Jesus, show us a sign, and I had egged him on. So let's get back to our text. Verses 38 and 39 says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Well, notice that Jesus calls them two things. I mean, first he says they're evil, and that's why they're asking this. In other words, he's convinced there is no sincerity in their request. He already knows they intend to murder him and have no desire at all to get evidence. Indeed, he knows that even if they got their sign, even that wouldn't be enough. And second, Jesus knows the Pharisees belong to an adulterous generation. So here Jesus uses the language of the Old Testament prophets. You know, the Old Testament prophets were referring to Israel's idolatry and worshiping other gods, and they said it was like a wife having sex with other men. But if you know your Old Testament well, you will learn that Israel, I mean, after the Babylonian captivity, and then led by men like Ezra, put their idolatry finally and ultimately behind them. So by the time of Jesus, there were no idols among the Jews, and, and the Pharisees were thoroughly monotheistic. They would, for instance, have been very clear. The gods of the Greco-Roman pantheon, well, they utterly rejected them. 
So how could Jesus repeat the same charge, the charge that the earlier prophets made to a nation that was still in love with idolatry back then, and now repeat it, seeing that the Israelites had finally and ultimately put their idols behind them? Well, the answer has to be that their religion now, as it was, was just a man-made religion as it had been in the past. They had imposed their own rules on God. And just like the gods of the nations that surrounded Israel, gods that could be manipulated to suit your needs, the Pharisees were attempting to do the very same with the one true God. According to Jesus, this was no better than the idolatry of the past. So that's why Jesus won't do a sign. So let's examine that a bit. Let's talk about why a sign is never enough. First, we might take note that, as Jesus has pointed out, all of our moral condition is an obstacle to the truth. So listen to Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. In other words, according to the scripture, our biggest problem is not the lack of evidence. It's our moral condition that suppresses or overpowers the truth. I'm reminded of the late British philosopher Anthony Flew. He made a reputation of being an outspoken atheist. But in the year 2005, about five years before his death, I think he was then 81 years old, he renounced his lifetime of atheism. Here's what he said. The only sufficient explanation for the stunning order and complexity we observe in the universe, he said, is God. He stated that he was a man of science and reason. He always went where the evidence led him, he said. And with the advancements in science, the evidence led him to God. Well, all over the place, believers were rejoicing. I mean, he's finally seen the truth. The universe itself was his sign. Just give a man enough evidence and he's going to believe. But Anthony Flew never converted. He simply became a deist. That is, he believed that God created the world, but that God takes no interest in human affairs. And so he didn't believe he needed to repent of anything. He died as far as I know and as far from God as he had been all of his life. The sign from science of an altogether great creator never led him to confess his sins and never led him to faith in Christ. What headlines are capturing your attention? The stock market, international unrest, politics, violence? Is the world out of control? I want to encourage you, what may appear hopeless is completely within the governing hand of God. What seems mysterious, unwieldy, God's people place confidence in the creator, sustainer, and governor of all things. And that's the point of Dr. Neufeld's new series, The Mysteries of the Kingdom, a study of Matthew 11 to 13. Dr. Neufeld wrote, listen, Christian, your savior is not just a personal savior. He is Lord of heaven and earth and no opposition raised up against him will stand. Such is the power and authority of your Lord. Don't ever forget that. Join us all month for the mysteries of the kingdom right here on Back to the Bible Canada. And please consider offering your support for this daily Bible teaching program by calling 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. I hope you see that evidence by itself is never enough. 
The problem with Jesus is not that there isn't enough evidence. The problem with Jesus will always be that he exposes our sins and makes us utterly dependent on God and on grace. Jesus demands we surrender our lives into his hands. He he demands repentance and submission, faith and trust and humility, and these are major intrusions into our lives. Listen to John 3, verse 19. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And that's the real issue, not the absence of light, but the love of darkness. So that's why a sign will never solve the problem with our unbelief. The problem is not the lack of evidence. It's the moral condition of our heart. But notice also that the problem is not just our moral condition, but that signs, when God sends them, are interpreted according to our already existent moral condition. Remember the Pharisees. When when Jesus drove out a demon, they thought it a sign that Jesus was in league with the devil. For those who are determined not to believe, there's always another interpretation. Some time ago, I heard a parable of a group of mice who lived in the corner of a huge house. They sometimes heard the most beautiful music, and they came to believe that there must be a piano player. And one day, one of the brave mice got into the piano and got inside, and he said, there's no piano player here. I've seen the piano. It has steel cables inside of it of various thicknesses. When hammers hit those cables, it produces music. And it's the hammers hitting the cables that produce the music, not some mythic piano player that fools have invented. Well, so it is with the atheistic scientific debate. Some are convinced that if you give a natural explanation for any phenomenon, you have taken out the need for God. See, they never ask the question of creation and of intelligent design. And so any sign will be interpreted in another fashion. But the same was true of these Pharisees. The miracles were not enough. A sign was required. And the problem with what they had seen when Jesus drove out demons and healed the sick was that there were other explanations for this phenomenon. So whatever Jesus did didn't fill them with wonder. It only led them down the dark alley of seeking to explain this matter in another fashion. And that's why signs and miracles and scientific data, reason and philosophy, I mean, you fill in the blank, that will never satisfy the doubter. There rages in the human heart an abject hatred of God, and this will drown out everything else. And Jesus, for his part, will not pander to this kind of speculation. But let's get back to Jesus now. I'm reading verses 39 to 41. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment of this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. For those looking for a sign, one is in fact given. It's the sign of Jonah. And please notice that this is not the sign that Jonah did. In fact, Jonah himself is the sign. So let's review what we know about Jonah. Jonah lived in the northern kingdom of Israel during the reign of King Jeroboam II, who reigned from 793 to 753 BC. And many Bible teachers place the events described in the book of Jonah at about 760 BC. And during his time, a great and powerful new nation, 
and empire had arisen, and it was the empire of Assyria, located somewhere around present-day northern Iraq, but whose empire was to encompass much of what we now call the Fertile Crescent. Eventually, it stretched all the way through Iraq, Turkey, Syria, Lebanon, and yes, you guessed it, all the way into Israel. But at the time of Jonah, the threat of Assyria was still well off in the horizon, and if Assyria should ever arise, well, they were in great danger. And so God comes to this Jewish prophet by the name of Jonah and tells him to journey to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, and preach repentance there. But as you know the story, Jonah was suspicious about God's intent. I mean, he was afraid God might use his preaching to convert these wicked, pagan, idolatrous people, so he decides to run from God. I don't need to repeat the account. And Jonah's in the belly of a fish for three days, and he survives, and out of fear, does what God wants him to do. He ends up in Nineveh, and he preaches a very simple message. Forty more days, and Nineveh will be destroyed. That's all he says. And something about this event, perhaps they heard about Jonah's remarkable encounter at sea with a fish. Well, whatever it is, the men of Nineveh repent, and they turn to the God of Israel for mercy. And, and God hears and accepts their repentance and spares the city. Now, Jesus shows a parallel between himself and Jonah. Just as Jonah was three days and nights in the fish, so he too will be three days and nights in a grave. And, and by the way, as an aside, if you're wondering how this can be true, given that Jesus died on Friday, and therefore he was only two nights in the grave, remember, Jesus is using the Jewish way of speaking. You know, for the Jews, the term day and night, well, that represents any part of a complete day. So there's no contradiction here. It's just the normal way in which Jews would talk. But let's get back to the main issue. Jonah, after his experience with a fish, was a sign. So Jesus, after his experience with the cross and death, and then resurrection, will also be a sign. Now, while there are similarities between Jesus and Jonah, there are a great many dissimilarities. You know, for one, Jonah hated the people of Nineveh, and Jesus loved the people of Israel. Jonah went reluctantly. Jesus went willingly. Jonah only offered a message of condemnation, and Jesus offered a message of forgiveness and hope. And Jonah did no miracles, but Jesus did them constantly. Jonah was hoping the men of Nineveh would ignore him and die, but Jesus was pleading with Israel that they would turn to him and live. And furthermore, the men of Nineveh knew very little about the God of Israel. And the Pharisees and teachers of the law spent a lifetime studying the revelation of the God of Israel. See, the point then is this. The men of Nineveh repented and the, and the Pharisees didn't. But Jesus says more. He says that at the judgment, the men of Nineveh will rise up and condemn the generation that rejected Christ. And well, you might stop here and ask, I mean, how do they do that? Are they invited to the witness stand of the last judgment and give a testimony against the Pharisees? I mean, how do we understand that matter? Well, there are three passages in the New Testament, Matthew 19, 28, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2, and Revelation 20, verse 4, that speak of the saints participating in the judgment. So it would appear that God will call the men of Nineveh to give a testimony as to how it is that they repented of their sins and believed in the mercy of the God of Israel. It was on the basis of a very sparse piece of evidence. The only sign they had was Jonah, the man who was spared from certain death. See, notice in verse 41, Jesus does not say, someone greater than Jonah is here. If he said that, that would, of course, be true. 
but he says something greater is here. He means the time in which these men live, a time when the kingdom of heaven is tumbling into the present hour, a time when the hopes of the prophets are being fulfilled, a time when God is opening the doorway to have sins forgiven. That's the time something absolutely earth-shattering is happening and the Pharisees can't see it. And that's why it'll always be silly to say, if I had only been there to see Jesus and hear him and see his miracles, well, then if I had been at the resurrection, I would have believed. Listen to me. The reality is there are many who were there and they didn't believe at all. See, this is the key. For those who are willing to face things like their own sin, the need for grace, And if you wonder if the gospel is true, the good news is that there is enough evidence to believe. But for those who will not face their own sin, who who think it an affront to talk about sin, there will always be enough doubt that they will never find enough evidence to believe. The problem will always be our internal moral condition and never the insufficiency of the evidence. And this is precisely how Jesus wanted it. When we finally come to chapter 13, Jesus will tell us more. But but for now, I make an invitation to all who are sin-sick and weary of living without God. Jesus offers you life. And if you wonder how it might be so, that all of this is true, he provides you with more evidence than you can fathom. Come to him, believe in him, confess your sins, and you will find life for your soul. John, a question comes to mind, and you know, I think it's a good question because we look around the world today and there's so many devastating things that happen in people's lives, and people would say, well, the reason I don't believe in God is because look at this and look at that. How can so many bad things happen? How can I believe in a God like that? You know, sometimes it's helpful, Ben, to separate out two different questions, and one is that emotional question that says, God, how can you allow that? And Really, that kind of a question is, you know, I couldn't believe in a God. It basically means to say, I am angry with God because this is what he allows to happen. So that really deals with our anger. Uh, But I think the other question really is, it's a most basic question. See, God's existence doesn't depend upon what you and I believe. His existence and who he is depends upon his very nature and how he has revealed himself and the evidence that he has given So provided that we allow the emotion to overrun everything else, we'll never get at the basic question. Thanks so much, John. Remember to continue to join us in this series, The Mysteries of the Kingdom, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. How will you begin 2019? And when the year comes to a conclusion, What will you look back on to know that you've earnestly pursued God, you've witnessed His power, experienced His love, and declared His praise? Well, Back to the Bible Canada is a Bible teaching ministry not intended simply to change minds, but hearts, and to call God's people to live lives that glorify Him. This new year, we continue to search out God's will and purpose to embrace new opportunities for declaring His word of truth and freely share Bible teaching resources that engage the mind, heart, and spirit. Our prayers that you would journey with us with your prayers, your encouragement, and your financial support. Together, working to share God's word of truth and life. 
Call us today with your gift or for more information about all the ministry resources available to you, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.